Mycobacterium tuberculosis was found in the remains of bison dated 18,000 years old. Now, two billion humans have been exposed to this disease. What can we learn today about tuberculosis and what are the clinical implications of drug-resistant strains? You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushaz, and with me today from Texas is Dr. Jeffrey Cirillo. Dr. Cirillo is Associate Professor at the Department of Microbial and Molecular Pathogenesis at Texas A&M Health Science Center College of Medicine in College Station, Texas. Today, we're talking about tuberculosis and what clinicians need to know about it on a cellular level, and then we're going to talk about its problems with drug resistance. Welcome, Dr. Cirillo, and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So how many years have you been studying tuberculosis? I've been working on tuberculosis now about 23 years. And what's the current global disease burden and the disease burden in the USA? The current global disease burden is approximately a billion people, so nearly one-third of the world's population. And in the U.S. alone, there's approximately a million people that are infected with tuberculosis. And what's the current recommended treatment regime? There's three different lines of treatment that are used for tuberculosis. Isoniazid is one of the primary drugs, rifampin is another, and pyrazinamide. That's the first-line therapy, but then there are second- and third-line therapies for tuberculosis. And as you go down the ladder of first, second, and third line, they increase in toxicity. How do the treatment regimes differ by country? In general, the World Health Organization has tried to ensure that there's uniformity between each of the countries, and they've actually tried to ensure that all of the drugs are available. And so I think in general, there's pretty good uniformity across the world in terms of what drugs are used, but oftentimes the care with which the drugs are given and how they're delivered often isn't exactly what we'd like. And so we've tried to actually increase the infrastructure to allow proper delivery of the drugs everywhere in the world. But as you can imagine, as you get to smaller and smaller clinics throughout the world, there's some confusion on what's given. And oftentimes they'll be given some of the second-line drugs with the first-line drugs. And so there'll be a little bit of inconsistency there. But at least the guidelines that exist worldwide are very standard. Now, can we just review for our physician listeners how the bacterium operates once a person has been exposed to tuberculosis? What is normally done when they've been exposed to tuberculosis is we'll do a PPD test to see if they have converted to a positive immunological reaction to tuberculosis. And if they show a positive immunological reaction, that which often takes sometimes uh, up to three months to show a positive reaction, they'll go ahead and do an x-ray. And so oftentimes if because the PPD takes so long to show up as positive, they'll even do an x-ray if the person has a known contact despite the fact that their PPD is not positive. But normally they'll go ahead and just do the PPD. If the PPD is not positive, they may do some sort of treatment with a single drug. Sometimes they'll use isoniazid for that, and they'll do a short course of four to six months to kind of prevent the possibility that they'll get the acute infection later on. And in terms of the types of tuberculosis, what proportion globally of tuberculosis is respiratory infection? Percentage globally for respiratory infection is somewhere around 60% to 80%, and it depends on the population. Particularly in the HIV-positive populations, we see a much higher incidence of extrapulmonary tuberculosis, which is one of the most lethal forms of tuberculosis. 
tuberculosis. So we see as high as 50 to 60 percent of the population gets extrapulmonary forms of tuberculosis in HIV-positive populations, so where there's a high prevalence of HIV positivity. And on a molecular level, what are the roles of the pathogen and the host? There seems to be an interplay between the pathogen and the host, and one of the areas that we've seen a major difference in terms of the disease process is, is with the extrapulmonary forms. And this is a grave concern because in extrapulmonary forms of tuberculosis, the course of therapy is longer. And like I say, in HIV-positive populations, since they're somewhat immunocompromised even early on and they show a synergistic reaction with their immune response and tuberculosis and their frequency of infection, they get the extrapulmonary forms and it can take as long as a year of treatment for them to recover fully and not have relapse. So there seems to be an interplay where if the immune response is not very strong, the bacteria both can get to extrapulmonary sites more readily and also your immune response doesn't work in coordination with the antibiotic therapy and so individuals don't eliminate the bacteria as well. Very similar things are seen with children as well. It seems that the immune response in children is such that they get the extrapulmonary forms of tuberculosis and also the courses of therapy have to be longer in order to prevent them from having a relapse. Do you know what percentage of tuberculosis infections occur in children worldwide? Percentage of the total population, I don't know, but in populations where tuberculosis is prevalent, they can be very high. Their exposure can be as high as 80%. What are the genes that affect entry of the bacterium into the host? That's a very difficult question. There is some MHC class that's associated with initial infections, so showing acute disease. But we've also looked a lot both at the bacterial side and at the host side of the genes that are involved in the ability to get into our host cells. So this bacteria grows within our own immune cells, and it's one of the reasons that we have such a problem eliminating it. It grows within the phagocytic cells within our body that are called macrophages, and it can survive in dendritic cells as well. And within those macrophages, the receptors that are involved in the ability of the bacteria to invade are thought to be things like complement receptors, surfactant receptors, receptors that are naturally present in the host. And on the bacterial side, where there's a number of genes that also seem to be involved. There are sugars on the surface of the bacterial cell that seem to be involved. There's a number of initial survival genes that seem to be important for the ability to invade into the host and, and colonize the host. But this is an area that we're working avidly on now, both how it initially gets into the lung and how it survives there, as well as how it gets out to extrapulmonary sites from the lung. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Mary Lushaz, your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cirillo, and we're discussing tuberculosis. Dr. Cirillo, what's the definition of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis? Multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis is tuberculosis that's resistant to two of the three first-line drugs. So if they're resistant to two of the three first-line drugs, the three drugs, even though they're given three drugs up to nine months, um, they don't fully eliminate the bacilli that are present in the infection. And this leads to the increased possibility of them developing even greater resistance. So they have to go to the second-line drugs. And the second-line set of three is more toxic, so the patients don't feel as well. 
takes longer to completely eliminate the bacteria, and there's a greater frequency of relapse even if they are treated properly. So it's very dangerous to have just MDR tuberculosis. In addition, the mortality rates are higher for multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis, and they can be as high as 60%, which is very similar to the percentages of mortality that were seen prior to the time of development of antibiotics in the 50s. What about the resistant strains of tuberculosis? Can we talk more about that? Sure. Certainly the biggest problem that we have is that people had thought because they were multiple drug resistant, they would be less virulent for humans. And because of that extra burden of carrying those genes that are involved in drug resistance, we felt that it would be more likely that they were less virulent. But it turns out that some of the strains that carry the high levels of antibiotic resistance are also some of the most virulent strains. And there seems to be a geographic distribution that allows them to get into populations that are very susceptible. And so we have both a combination of susceptible populations as well as multiple drug resistance. And this has led to what's called extreme drug resistance strains. And extreme drug resistance strains are resistant to as, as many as five to six of the antibiotics that are used for treatment of tuberculosis. And that means they're resistant to the first and the second line drugs. And so clinicians have to go to the third line of drugs to treat. And this is a grave concern because now XDR strains or extreme drug resistance strains have been seen pretty much everywhere in the world, including the U.S. So there's not really any choices for what we use for therapy because still we're going to see a very high frequency of mortality. We're going to see a high frequency of extrapulmonary tuberculosis. And so we really need to be developing new antibiotics. And there haven't been any new antibiotics developed for tuberculosis since the 60s. So this is a major area of research currently. And what's the main reason for the development of drug resistance? Is it prescribing practices? It appeared to be non-compliance. And what we were seeing, and this, this was a big problem in the U.S. during the early 90s, and, and it has been alleviated somewhat, but the problem is it requires great vigilance on the part of the healthcare infrastructure. What had happened is that we would be giving the patients their antibiotics. It used to be that the patients were locked up in hospitals and not allowed to leave, and, and currently that wouldn't be allowed, although that still occurs in some areas of the world. A number of the areas in the developing world currently, what they do is they put them in like jails. And because they've got multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis, they're so concerned about these patients, they don't let them leave, and they treat them in these jails and they prevent them from leaving. So in the U.S., we've kind of done a different approach. It's called DOTS, Directly Observed Therapeutic System. And the DOTS system, what it basically does is we send a healthcare worker out to the populations that are infected. And most of these populations that have the high frequency of tuberculosis in the U.S. are populations that are transient. So people that move from one area of the U.S. to another, either they can be homeless populations, sometimes they are IV drug abusers, but the populations are oftentimes in some aspect of our healthcare system or the social care system and they are hard to track. They may not even have addresses. So we have to send a clinician or a healthcare worker or a social worker directly to the patient. They watch them take their therapy, they take their antibiotics, and then they leave. And so what was happening is, you know, a patient doing what they would normally do, they take their antibiotics for a month or so because you're taking three pills, and these are large pills, every day for, you know, six months to a year. Um, most patients won't do that, even well-educated individuals with a good solid address. But many of the patients don't have a good solid address and don't necessarily have the best educational background. And so they say, well, I feel better. I don't need to take these drugs. And so they'll either sell the drugs or they'll throw them away. 
And so what it required is actually watching the patients take the antibiotics and, and validating that each patient is taking their antibiotics, and that has actually decreased the frequency of antibiotic resistance. But because this isn't in place everywhere in the world, although the World Health Organization is working very hard on this currently, we have a significant problem with the establishment of drug-resistant strains and the inability to treat them. And so that's what we're working on now is trying to figure out ways that we can prevent this from occurring. It doesn't seem that DOTS itself has allowed the elimination of the drug-resistant strains because once they arise, since they're drug-resistant, we can't prevent these strains from spreading unless we have new drugs to use. The infrastructure method has worked so far in developed countries and in the U.S., but in underdeveloped countries, it hasn't really worked very well yet. And so we're very concerned about this because we're still seeing an increase in about 50 to 100% in the number of cases of drug-resistant strains throughout the world currently. Do you think in the future there will be one super drug for TB? <laughs> no. I think it's a super bug in the first place, and that's part of the problem, is that it's possible that we can get new antibiotics, and we actually, there are in the pipeline, I think there's actually in third stage of clinical trial, there is one drug that is in the development right now. It has some complex number, but that drug looks pretty good. There are some modifications in therapy that have come about recently, but I would say in my lifetime, I don't really expect one magic bullet. I think people look for that, and, and we all do. We'd love to have something that's a magic bullet vaccine or a magic bullet therapeutic. But it's really very complicated, and we don't really know enough about the biology of the organism and how, even how antibiotics gain access to the niches that tuberculosis persists in, because tuberculosis is very unique. It can persist in the body up to 50 years in a patient and show no disease, and then can come out of that for an unknown reason. Maybe the immune response dropped a little bit or whatever, but it comes out a strain that we haven't seen for 20, 30 years, comes out in a patient because the patient had a latent lesion. And it appears the bacteria aren't even replicating in that lesion. So when a bacteria is not replicating, it's unclear how you even kill it. Most of the antibiotics that exist are dependent upon either cell wall growth or DNA replication or transcription. And so if we don't have those characteristics ongoing in the pathogen, it's very difficult to see how we'd eliminate it. Well, my thanks to you, Dr. Cirillo, for being our guest today. We've been giving clinicians an update about tuberculosis and talking about the clinical implications of drug resistance. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening.